Today we will be, at some point during the sermon, saying goodbye to Antiochus Epiphanes. I know you're going to miss him, and I know some of you are going to want to do a lot of further study on him on your own time. Uh, But as we get into Daniel 11 and wrap up Daniel 11 today and move into 12, um, we will say goodbye to him and the prophecies about him and about his the havoc that he's going to create. We're not quite there yet. We're going to start in Daniel 11, starting in verse 36. And the king being referenced there is probably still him. Um, and by the way, I would note, um, you know, one of the things we wrestled with many years ago about putting verses on the screen is, uh, is under the hope that, of course, when you don't have a screen in front of you at home, uh, you can be looking at your Bible on your own, whether it's on your own screen or whatever. I hope you're doing that. Um, it, was, it actually was a discussion we had as a staff many, many years ago, is are we, are we teaching you the wrong lesson by putting it up on the screens? I love when I see, again, they're there for you to, to read and look at and proof that I'm not making stuff up. Uh, also, it also is great anytime you look at it right in front of you as well and read along. I think that's awesome, especially if you prefer a different version of the Bible um, to do it that way as well. But that's where we are. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and he shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed will be done. Again, just as the the angel is telling Daniel, what I'm telling you is going to happen is going to happen. What I'm decreeing will happen. He shall, verse 37, pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these, a God whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor, and he shall make them rulers over many and divide the land for a price. Again, all of this uh, very much so describes our friend Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, um, he is uh, a guy. He is a, he is a man who does not honor anyone. He doesn't accept people who agree with him. The people who are on his side, that he goes, he he rewards them. That's positive. But let me just tell you, the commentaries are all over the map about this passage. They're struggling to figure out who a gods Antiochus actually served. When they look at this, um, they're gods of his fathers that he ignores. There's a new god not known to his forefathers. There's a god he honors even though he ignores these other gods of his past. The original language even probably indicates he didn't care about the love of women. Um, it's hard to tell in the original language exactly what's being said in the, in the phrase about that. It may indicate a female god or goddess. It, it may indicate that, that he's ignoring, um, that other people are serving. That's also a possibility. Um, the, this disregard for the gods... A special insight into Antiochus, into his heart and his motivations, because as the passage indicates, he also gives costly gifts to the gods. Um, according to at least one historian from near his time, he was actually exceeded all kings before him in his visible acts of sacrifice. That he loved to, quote, honor the gods even at the temples to give uh, expensive gifts to them, to sacrifice to them. But I think, I think we can uh, recognize that we have, what we have here is a political leader who is savvy. He knows when to cut ties. He knows who's to turn on, and he does. He respects no covenants. No, he honors no uh, agreements. He has none of that kind of stuff. And so here we have a guy who, that's his attitude about all of these things. 
And, and yet he gives all this money, he gives all this wealth to the temples all over the place, the different gods of all different types. And I think that's just showing his political savvy. I think, again, it's just showing it's, it's he, he, is, he is deferring to the religious right. He's saying what they want to hear. He's giving them what they want to hear. He is, he, is, he, is, he is acknowledging them. He's honoring them. But in his heart, he doesn't care about any of this. None of this means anything to him. I think the confusion here is not necessary. The confusion among all the different commentaries is not necessary. Maybe my insights as a psychologist here can help. When I add in not only that, but my own personal experiences as an American, as a Texan, as an Aggie, as a Baptist, what I would tell you is I think what we're dealing with is someone who, the God who he serves, I think that Antiochus Epiphanes served a God named Antiochus Epiphanes. I think he served himself above anything else. I think he had no God higher than himself. He desired nothing like he desired his own power, his own rightness, his own way. I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. And it doesn't make any difference what anybody else says. Sure, I could tip the hat if I feel like it. Sure, I can honor people so long as they can help me. But as the minute they can't, I'm done with them. I'm going to move along. His own world was crafted by his own hands. He knew no God higher than himself. And one of my areas of expertise that I actually train other therapists in is a narcissistic personality disorder. Um, and, and don't guess at why I have special insight into narcissistic personality disorder, please. Um, I've confessed it enough times. But in America here, we not only do we, so many of them live today in our culture and in our media and in our churches with this mindset. Today, now in America, we honor them. We, buy, we pay them to star in our movies. We pay them to run our country, to compete in our sports, to perform medical procedures on us, to fly our airplanes, to enforce our laws, to run our churches, to preach our sermons. The truth is these people know no God higher than themselves, and sometimes you can spot them, and sometimes it's really hard to and I think that's what's being described here about Antiochus Epiphanes. He can learn to say the right words, but the truth is the rules only apply to him that he thinks should apply to him and the others don't. It doesn't make any difference who the authority is, the constitution, the governing authorities, the bosses, the church leaders, you name it. He knows better. He's the only one who really understands. It doesn't matter who claims to have authority over him, including God. No one does but himself. This is not a new problem. It's not a new problem for us as humans. It's not even a rare problem for us as humans. In fact, I would say it's a universal problem for us as humans, and it's the earliest problem that we had as humans. Genesis 3, 4, and 5 says this, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. So that's what it comes down to, is the truth is that we think, that we should be the one. There's a great book out there about narcissistic personality disorder, which we now have a name for it, a diagnosis for it. It's been around. We could call it the sin of Eve and Adam. We could call it the sin of every human who's ever lived. And we get caught up in that, and we start believing our own press, and we start thinking that, um, that the Bible verses that apply to everybody else are our favorites, right? How many husbands, their life verses, wives submit to your husbands, right? That's the one you won't put up on the wall. The fact that it says wives, comma, means it wasn't for you. Sorry. It was for her to read that verse. You, you're allowed to skip the verses that are targeted at it. Okay. This is a problem we all have. We're running into. It's not, 
It's, it's not quite a blow then soon when all of this, it must have been a huge blow then, I mean, when, when his life fell apart on him. This often happens with people who have this mindset of knowing no God higher than themselves, that pride is their sin. The name of the book, by the way, I was telling you about is called um, The World According to Me. When I teach, um, when I teach other therapists about narcissistic personality disorder, I, um, uh, uh, the name of my seminar I stole from a bumper sticker that I saw in a car. It said, only you can prevent narcissism. Uh-huh. Think about it for a second. Some of you get there. <clears throat> um, this is Antiochus. This is the sin of each one of us. Remember how important it is when we're studying Scripture to recognize, though we do identify with the hero, and that's totally appropriate for us to be looking at the hero and trying to identify with the hero. It is also important that we take a few minutes every time and see if we identify with the villain and see to what degree we fit in with this one And Antiochus represents a sin in the hearts of all of us. Someone who worships no God higher than ourselves. We all seek to be like God. In fact, every single human except one has considered equality with God a thing to be grasped. Um, And that one was God, and that's why he didn't consider it a thing to be grasped. So it must have been pretty bad when his forces were defeated by a group of Jewish freedom fighters, though honestly I'm sure it was somebody else's fault, right? Somebody else must have messed up. Then he dies of a disease, an injury, or drowning, and potentially all three. We actually don't know exactly how Antiochus Epiphanes died. Three different historians that we have from that time list three different causes of death. And so I like to try to create a scenario in which he died of disease, injury, and drowning. Um, At least that would be the more interesting one. You would expect the account to kind of end here, by the way. So you're reading through the book of Daniel, you're reading through Daniel 11, you get all the way through, you get to Daniel 11, you're reading through Daniel 11, you get to verse 39, and this is where it should end, you would expect it to end. He's dead. The Maccabees take over, the Maccabees reestablish Mosaic law, and, and they, they re-sanctify the temple, and they make it right again, and there's temple sacrifices again in Jerusalem, in the temple, again for the first time in a long, long time. And it gets to happen for 103 years, or maybe as Daniel would say, 14.77s or 37,492 times or 55,356 weeks. It goes on for a long time. We don't, we don't see this. You actually think it would be, okay, that the angel would say, all good, Daniel, you prayed, we came, we helped you understand the situation. You were so wise, Daniel, that you picked up on this. It's amazing it's, it's kind of what we're probably likely to face as a church. Like We don't, we don't know as, as more and more people. I know there are people who are here today who have not been here in over a year. They got their vaccine. Um, you know, you've, as someone said this morning, you finally got your shots, and so now you can come, right? Um, just like taking your dog to the vet. We're finally now ready. We're good. And so some of you are here for the first time in maybe a year or more, which is awesome. It's exciting for us to start gathering back together. And maybe, as, I've, as I, I said to the leadership board, it may be that in the fall, we see new record numbers in attendance. Once we start removing these center aisle, these, these rows and, and everyone's back and we get 150 people who are ready to serve and work with the children and the dozens more who it's going to take to work with the, with the students and the et cetera, and all that expands and we, go, we may see new outrageous numbers. I think that's what Daniel thought was going to happen 70 years after the exile. We get an exile, it's been 70 years, the king has now said, listen, y'all can all go home. And no one goes. Or very few people go. A small percentage of the Jewish people left. They were all comfortable down in Babylon. They're now happy in Persia. They're, no, no, we're good here. We've gotten used to this. It's kind of fun to watch on the, watch it on the, on the screen, right? You can sit in your PJs in your living room and you... Oh, that's interesting. 
Elizabeth's going to check on it for us. That's supposed to be the fire alarm. We have someone checked, though, because it, it goes off every once in a while and it ends up not being, hi, people online, we have a fire alarm going here. Just in perfect, you're like, ah, see, if you were home, you wouldn't have to mess with this. This exact, this right here is why I stay home for church. There it goes. No smoke. We're good. Luckily, uh, we have a couple of fire professionals who are going to check it out. We're all good? All right, we're going to assume we're good. Um, We're fine. If you were to die today and you were to stand before God. (laughs) Sorry. A little teachable moment there. All right, so hate to break into the sermon like that. The, um, I'm still waiting for the fire professional to come back and tell us it's okay. Okay, so guess what you would expect. We'll keep going. We would expect this, this to just continue going, but we have, a, we have a problem when we get to verse 40. That isn't what happens. Instead, it keeps going. The, the prophecy just, there's no break in the concepts. Verse 40 begins like this. At the end of the time, at the the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. Oh, see, no problem. We're good. So we would assume the Ptolemaic kingdom must have launched an attack on the north, on the Seleucid Empire, and then been pushed back very powerfully, right? But there's a problem. All of a sudden, we have a prophecy that never happened. It's, it's never happened that way. To quote from Ellicott's commentary written by an Anglican theologian in the mid-1800s, quote, no such invasion of Egypt as that mentioned here is mentioned in history. Joseph Benson, early 1800s, Methodist minister, he wrote this, however, historians, however, make no mention of this, nor of any third expedition of Antiochus into Egypt. Now that's just Weird. You're reading along, and it's like reading someone's journal. It is reading a calendar. This happened, then this happened, then this happened, with strange, specific details. And then we get this first verse that hits, and you turn to the commentaries, and they go, yeah, we don't know. We got nothing. Never happened. So obviously, one option is all of this prophecy has been fantastically, ridiculously accurate all the way up till this point with with, with minute detail, and then suddenly just, you know, missed it. Oops, this was prophecy that didn't happen. Obviously, I'm not, I'm not happy with that concept. I'm not going to go along with that verb perspective. There must be some other way of looking at this. There are fragments of a legend of a third expedition into Egypt in the final years of Antiochus' life, but no one gives it credence. There really probably is no evidence of that at all. If it somehow turns out that that were true, if we find some new information, well, great, that's fine. The interpretation of this passage would be simple and straightforward. But it really feels like the checklist just ran out. The check marks just stop. The boxes are now suddenly empty. As of now, there's nothing in that ear of history that looks like this. And by the way, the rest of this passage, which we're going to read in a minute, continues describing things that didn't happen. How shocking that every single prophecy has been so exact and now it's strange. So some, histori- some commentaries attribute this to just our lack of knowledge of this era. That certainly is an issue. Could something like this have happened and we just missed it? It's possible. It's not super likely given that especially this era when the Romans are taking over recording history here at this time, they're better at it. But that may be. Some think that maybe this is just, this is actually, this last little section is just Daniel summing up. Like, hey, you know what? Let me go back, start at the beginning to sum up. There's a whole bunch of things that happen here. That's it. And that's possible. 
Certainly, there are several um, recapitulations of the same things that happens over and over again. We, I'm going to talk more about this in a second, this birth pains idea, this idea of, of things getting worse and worse and worse and, until finally the thing that, that is predicted happens actually happens. <clears throat> For example, Jerusalem, the, 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 uh, the besieging of Jerusalem that happens in this era, it happens several times. Um, if you get to go, we'll talk about at some point that there's been several times that armies have surrounded the holy city. Here's a few of them, 701 B.C., 597 B.C., 587 B.C., 63 B.C., 37 B.C., 70 A.D., 614 A.D., 637, 1099, 1187, 1244, 1834, 1917, and 1948, just to name a few. This has happened over and over again. These, these, these nations gather together and they besiege the holy city, and often there are dispersions and evacuations and refugees, etc., at the end of the Maccabean rule, which is called the Hasmonean dynasty, this happened about 30 years. It ended about 30 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Herod the Great, with a whole bunch of Roman assistants, um, brought Israel screeching into the Roman intrigues and politics and control. The Romans that he had bribed to help him take the holy city, the problem was he then had to bribe them to stop destroying the city after they took it. He actually had to bribe the Roman soldiers to stop pillaging his city. The great fall of the city that would happen in AD 70. In AD 70, another group of Romans were going to come in and absolutely devastate the city of Jerusalem. It, again, if you get to go, we, when we go, we always stop and we look at the Temple Mount. We're not only, so when the Romans are mad at you, when they're done with you, they are done with you. And they burn, not only do they burn the temple down, not only did they dismantle it stone by stone, but then they were so vengeful, they then rolled these massive stones. Dozens of soldiers would roll these massive stones to the edge of the cliff walls of the Temple Mount and shove them over, just so no one could ever get those stones back up on the Temple Mount to rebuild the temple again. The, the level of vindictiveness is impressive. But you can go see it. This city was absolutely destroyed in A.D. 70, and Jesus predicted it at a sermon called the Olivet Discourse. It's found in Matthew 24. We're going to look at it in a minute. Others point to the fact that this is greatly fulfilled by the Muslim invasions of Europe and Israel. These started in the 700s especially, which if these passages stood alone, would make very good sense. Some think this is an event from another time in history. Matthew Henry, who wrote in the 1600s, um, and who along with his later editors tended to think that a lot of prophecy was about the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope. In fact, you gotta, it's kind of funny when you read Matthew Henry, you have to kind of edit him a little bit. He is so sure that every bad thing in the Bible is about the Pope. Um, they think this is about Romans in general, and clearly in the early Roman Catholic Church in particular. He thinks this passage is fulfilled in the 900s A.D. Maybe more recent invasion of Egypt and other nations into Israel. The Six Days War, the Yom Kippur War, these, these could be, I mean, how better to describe them than an army of the south attacks Israel into the north, and then Israel, like a whirlwind, shoves them back and, and defeats them. That's pretty much exactly what happened at Yom Kippur. And so maybe that's what's being fulfilled here. That happened in 1973. So some take the phrase, quote, at the end of time to mean this story doesn't really happen until the end times. For example, does this section reference the Battle of Armageddon? Maybe you've heard of it. We find it referenced that this word is used in Revelation 16. We'll start in verse 14. 
For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for a battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Verse 16, And they assembled them at a place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So technically, Armageddon would mean the mountain of Megiddo. But there is no such place as a mountain at Megiddo. Megiddo is a well-known place. We go there. I think I've got a picture of Tel Megiddo. So the closest thing you have to a mountain at Megiddo is a Tel. A Tel, though, is a man-made mountain. Um, it comes from that there is a, there's a, a city that's there, and then that city gets destroyed and built on top of because its location is so important. And Megiddo is one of the most strategically significant places in all of the Holy Land. And so it got destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt several dozen times, in fact, 20-something times in this spot. They've dug all the way down to cultures that were living here 4,000 years ago. In fact, I would submit that, at least in my experience, the creepiest place I've ever been on the planet Earth is the 4,000-year-old pagan altar um, that they've dug up there that certainly would have had human sacrifices on it. Um, and so to, to be there is just a little more than a little chilling to, to be right there at it. That's, that's the tell, but that's no mountain. There is no Mount Megiddo. So many people think that Armageddon is a, is a reference to this series of battles that would happen in significant, strategically significant places, powerful places, big places, like this big mountain that's being fought over all the time. That certainly is a plausibility. It also, this passage, Daniel 11 and Revelation 16 and one more I'm going to show you in a minute, seem to kind of funnel human history down to this point and maybe to some place near here, the Valley of Jezreel, which has been fought over by maybe more than any other place on the planet. And so, so the gathering of the armies of the world in this one place is a real potential, a real possibility. Dwight Pentecost, um, the minister, thought that this reference in Daniel was a direct description of a series of battles between the beasts of Revelation, described in Daniel 16 and other places, and a rebel army from a king of the south that culminates with a great battle in Israel proper, which itself culminates with the appearance of Jesus with an army of angelic beings and saints to crush the forces of the beast. It is wild in my notes in this passage, I have a little note of almost disappointment then what's going to happen is these great armies of mankind are going to come together with all of their pride and all of their power and all of their glory, and they're going to show up here, and Israel's, it's going to look like it's the end of Israel forever, finally, that's it. A few countries are going to try to step alongside maybe, and then Jesus himself is going to come riding in out of the sky with all of his angelic hosts and the saints who have died, and they're all going to show up there together. And, and you've got this image of this massive angelic army, and there's going to be this huge fight, and there's no fight at all. Jesus speaks, and they're all done. Well, that's kind of anticlimactic. That's what I have written in my, in my Bible. It's like, well, I, I, want, to, I want to fight. He's not, he's not going to call us off the bench. When he's there, it's not like, well, I could use really use some help. No, I, I'm kidding. I don't need any of your help at all. I've got this handled. Like it's, a, it's this amazing moment that God, Jesus Christ and all of his power is going to make it very clear. No, no, I'm going to fell them with one word from my mouth. Dwight Pentecost says this, that after the defeat, that those, the forces of the beast are thrown into the lake of fire after being dragged before the great white throne to be judged. To quote him, the destiny of the lost is a place of the lake of fire. This lake of fire is described as everlasting fire, as unquenchable fire, emphasizing the eternal character of the retribution of the lost. 
to mean that the angelic, to, this, the angelic inform, informant has now moved his information from the, act, from, from the end of an event that's going to happen several hundred years in Daniel's future, potentially to the day of the Lord, which is some day in the future, that that phrase, the end of time, or the time of the end, is actually meant to be a transitional phrase at the beginning of verse 40, and we're no longer supposed to think these are going to be, have been fulfilled yet. That up through 39 already have been for us, from 40 on hasn't been. This is how most people, most, most Bible scholars engage with this passage. My eschatology, which I reference, is the birth pains, or the birth pangs version. Matthew 24 is where we find those. Again, I said this is the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discord. As he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus answered them saying, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many away, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus is talking about here the utter destruction of the city of Jerusalem. The consequences, the ripple effects of that, that as time goes on, there will be more wars, not less. There will be more sickness, not less. There will be more disease and famine, not less, which is mind-blowing to consider that you would think we would have these things figured out by now. We are technologically so far from this era. Anyone from this era who walked into a gas station would think it was religious miracles going on around them. Doors that open on their own, walls that you can see through, air that comes out whatever temperature you tell it to, they would think that's a miracle. But let me tell you what they would, not, they would have no problem recognizing is the hatred that goes on between humans. Wow, yeah, y'all can cool the air. That's amazing. So how have y'all, how have y'all ended war? Well, not so much. We haven't done that. You mean y'all haven't still got together and vote to end war? That's just like, how have we not solved that yet? Could we just like, get, have an online vote? Everyone who wants war to be over just agrees, signs yes. Like, yes. In the next hundred years, how many people would we like to die in combat? I vote zero. Anybody else want to vote zero? Let's just all vote. The whole world will all vote zero, and then we'll have a Coke together and sing in perfect harmony, right? That's how this is going to work. Why can't we get this right? And we're not going to get it right. We're not going to solve these issues on our own. And I would think history is a good defense of that statement. Instead, what we're going to see is it's going to get, it's going to happen, and then it's going to happen again, and then it's going to happen again, and then it's going to happen again, and eventually it's going to happen a last time. Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies, and then it'll be surrounded by armies, and later it's going to be surrounded by armies, and someday it's going to be surrounded by armies one last time. This is the birth pains picture. I talked about in the first service experiencing when Ginger was giving birth to Mark and being there in the hospital, and this was obviously new to both of us. And so sitting there, and they had some monitor hooked up to her, and I don't know what that monitor was measuring besides the fact that it, it, the higher the number got, the worse it got for me. Um, the less happy she was with me, that's for sure, is that, is that that number would climb, and then it would go back down, then it would climb, and it would go back down. And at some point, I, got, I understood well enough to know that when it climbed, so she would collapse exhausted when the number would drop back down and just and instantly fall asleep, more like a coma. And then I could watch it climb back up, and I would know there's a number. When it hits that number, she's going to suddenly be very awake and, and, and probably not pleased if I'm not there to help in some way. Like, I need to be ready for that when she, that number hits. It's going to get worse, and then it's going to get worse, and the number would climb, and it would go back down, and it would climb, and it would go back down, and it was important 
Um, a couple of times I fell asleep and was not awake when the number hit a certain number, and so she, she, she had reminded me that I needed to be awake at that time. So this is, the, this is the experience that everybody who has been a part of this, every woman who's given birth has experienced these birth pains, and then suddenly there's a baby, Right? This is the picture that Jesus gives. And by the way, how does he describe the absolute destruction in A.D. 70 of Jerusalem? The gathering of armies, the diseases and the wars, how does he describe them? As the beginning of birth pains. This is just the beginning. It's just getting started. The prophecy of the destruction of Mount Zion, Jerusalem, it's echoed and rippled dozens of times. So now if we go back and read Daniel 11, starting in verse 40, through this mindset. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush on him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen and many ships. And he shall come into countries and overflow and pass through and come into glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites, and he will stretch out his hand against these countries. The lands of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become a ruler of the treasure of gold and silver and the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. Is this an event that could still be in our future? This activity, as many commentaries think, that somehow the king of the south, whoever that is, attacks the king of the north, but gets violently pushed back and at a great loss. The northern kingdoms take Israel and Egypt and East Africa and northern Africa follow along. Tidings from the east and the north. In today's world, Russia, Iran, and China are all north and east of these places. Some have noticed the similarities of this account and the massive battle described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Many of the same nations are involved. Some think these are various events. Some think they're the same event. Certainly, it seems like this is an event that could happen in the future. There are thousands of pages of material written about this, and I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes, about the danger of getting sidetracked by this um, rather than putting it in its proper place. The quick summary of this is there will be several nations that invade and defend Israel. Some invade, some defend. A regathered Israel, which really hadn't existed from A.D. 63, Uh, I mean, you could even argue B.C. 63, certainly since A.D. 70, until 1948. Arguably, Ezekiel's vision might not have been feasible until 1948. It's unpacked through all all at the end of Ezekiel, if you want to read it sometime. Ezekiel 39.2 says, And I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel. We're going to see in a second that Daniel references the fact that this king of the north is going to set up palatial tents in Israel proper. That has not been done. Unless you count Herod's palace, no one else has really done that. Sheba, Dedan, Tarshish will respond to defend Israel as the armies of the north, Magog, Meshach, Tubal, Persia, Cush, Put, Gomer, Togrma. There's some debate on which modern nations these are. I was fascinated by this as a young Christian. Fascinated. It actually ended up leading me a little bit astray and into a stage of questioning my faith for a while that I got so sidetracked by some of this kind of stuff. And so you'll know, I actually was so fascinated by this. This was being taught in youth camp um, all the time. For some reason, they thought this was a great way to use um, youth camp time was to teach through Ezekiel 38 and 39. That that kind of decision-making boggles my mind today. 
But there was a book that was being sold at youth camp that was called The The Coming Russian Invasion of Israel that I immediately purchased and spent all my time looking at and trying to figure out what countries these were. But it was a different era. I have a little bit of, 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 I don't know, compassion on this seventh grade boy who who was so invested in this as something that he was passionate about. It was a different era. It was an era in which some of you are old enough to remember. Those of you who are older for sure do. But I remember we had at least one bomb uh, drill when I was in elementary school. Um, I think only one for me that I remember that we did, a bomb drill, which always you know, later struck me as fascinating. When I, I told a group of students about that one time, they were like, what do you mean a bomb drill? Like, like happens sometimes at schools today, hey, somebody's threatened to plant the bombs. Like, no, 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 I mean that the Russians had launched nuclear devices in the air like a 1980s movie, and, and, it was all, and so we were all supposed to, you remember what you were supposed to do? Yeah, duck down below your desk, because that's going to help, right? <laughs> I was like, looking back later, like, hmm, I don't know that I buy the, uh, the great significance of this. It's kind of like those five inches on the airplane, right? Like, oh yeah, now I'm safe. Like, that's a, no, no, this is not, not going to help you much, really. Um, but we, I remember doing that, like, like we would get below the desks and duck down and, and you know, hope that I guess the nuclear blast passed over our desks, um, that they'd blocked that somehow. This was a, uh, it was something that was done. It was normative to be concerned about that. In fact, when I was 19, if you guys can imagine, when I was 19, I was a student minister for the first time at 19, had no idea what I was doing, no business, honestly, <laughs> being a student minister. Um, and so I just on Wednesday nights was like, hey guys, what do y'all want to talk about? We'll talk about whatever you want to talk Ask any question you want to. And the first question that a seventh grade girl asked when I was 19 years old in my youth group was, are we all going to die in a nuclear war? That does not, when we sit down with the youth now and go, y'all can talk about anything you want to, that doesn't show up in the top 5,000 questions that they ask. The first 4,000 questions, by the way, are about how to love their friends who are making bad life decisions which is actually much better focus. I wish, I wish that I had known to be asking those questions. Instead, I was digging into Ezekiel 38 and 39, trying to figure out where Togarma was uh, in the history, which again is fascinating. There's nothing wrong with studying these things, but if you're not careful, prophecy can become that thing that you become distracted by. Um, it becomes too much of what you spend your time studying. Are they, are this, is this feasible? Could... could Russia or China and several Middle Eastern nations and North African nations declare war on Israel and the West, and, and several nations from the West and a few other Middle Eastern nations try to defend Israel? Sure, we've seen that nearly happen. When I was in seventh grade and actually was uh, in Washington, D.C. for my seventh grade D.C. trip, and, and that was the year I was there watching on the news as um, you know, Colonel Gaddafi drew a line in the, in the sea and said, this is the line of death. Anyone who crosses it, we will crush them. And so, of course, Ronald Reagan, being Reagan, sailed an aircraft carrier group halfway around the world just to cross the line of death. And I'm thinking, I'd rather World War III not start while I'm in Washington, D.C., right? Let me get back to Nacogdoches. It's a little quieter there. So, uh, and it, again, it didn't. We all, but we've seen it over and over again. The older you get, the more, here's what's wild, the more times you see events that could fit it. That's the birth pains. The Persian Gulf War, people are like, oh my gosh, this looks a lot like Ezekiel 38. And let me tell you, it did. It showed us again that this stuff can happen and could happen. In verse 45, he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he will come to his end with none to help him. Again, no one's done this yet. 
But the idea that a great, a great political and religious leader will someday do that makes total sense. Can you imagine if you're the one who finally brings peace to the Middle East? You're the one who gets to do that? That's, 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 we, call, we, we talk about peace in the Middle East because it doesn't happen there. When prophets predict peace in the Middle East, it's like predicting sand in the Middle East. It's, it's going to happen. I'm confident that it's going to be there. And yet at some point, someone's going to declare their peace there and to set up a palace there. Regardless, here's what we need to always remember as Christians when we see this, when we hear this. For some of you, we end up, for some of us, we end up being distracted. Oh no, are we going to die in a nuclear conflagration between two nations? By the way, somebody asked me after the first service, so what'd you tell her? I was like, I told her, maybe. I mean, it's certainly possible. Yeah, it could happen. I mean, it, it seems plausible. Regardless, this battle, whichever it is, is this Revelation 16, is it Ezekiel 38, Daniel 11, 40, and on? Are, are all of those one? Are they three different things? I don't, I don't know, and no one knows for sure. There's a lot of overlap. A lot of people think they are describing an event in our future. Regardless, notice how this wraps up. The battle belongs to the Lord. Chapter 12, verse 1, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge over your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name is found written in the book. Next week we're going to talk about this book in detail. We're going to look at all the different places. This concept of this book, it actually should be the scroll. They didn't have books back then. Um, and so this scroll that's being described here is the names written on the scroll. We're going to talk about that next week as we dive into the judgment conversation that's unavoidable in this passage. A series of running battles, a, a century or two centuries or five centuries of war, a powerful ruler finally seating himself in Israel, serious times of tribulation such as no one has ever seen before, and then relief, and then judgment. And then a resurrection. Verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. We'll talk about that. Everyone is resurrected. Everyone. That's good news for some. It's a nightmare for others. And this brings us to a good stopping point today. This is terror in the thought. Well, sometimes there's terror in the thought of Armageddon. The word itself has come to mean something awful and world-changing happens. You make a movie about a meteor hitting the earth and you call it Armageddon, which makes no sense whatsoever. I guess a mountain falling out of the sky is as close as you can get, right? But this conflictual future that is represented by this idea, wars, rumors of wars, famine, hunger, people being lovers of themselves instead of lovers of truth, much less the judgment that's going to come from a just and holy and righteous God. I, I would tell you, we need to pray that God would crush our hearts now. He would break us now so that we can experience the brokenness in the time of relative peace that He has for us. That we would be able to, to experience that during these times. But as for us, listen, the adopted children of that same God, our sins were paid for on a cross by a death in a tomb. They're paid for, done. There's no wrath for us. That wrath has been poured out already. As I referenced last week, the preacher who said, there's two places that your sins can be paid for, on the cross or in hell. I recommend the cross. 
we will be resurrected to eternal life. I'm going to talk about that before we're done too. This idea of eternal life with a God who is a crazy creative God, who is crazy about us, enough to adopt us and love us and choose us and seal us, a promise of loving consolation and steadfast security from the midst of turmoil through forever. This image, this image for me, one of my favorite for that was one of my experiences in Israel, sitting at Megiddo and, and hearing the other teacher was teaching. And so while the other teacher was teaching, I turned my back to them and overlooked the valley of Jezreel over the walls of, of Megiddo. And this is the picture I ended up taking. So here we are at a place whose name means destruction to us, whose name means death and desolation to us, Megiddo. And to look out over and see this contradictory message of the death and destruction that is promised and prophesied by God, being countered by the promise of the rainbow. I I was an adult before it struck me that it's called a rainbow because it is a bow. Not a bow like you put on a present, a bow like you kill your enemies with, with arrows. That what happened in that day is that God said, you know what, I'm going to hang this, this on the wall. I'm putting this one on the pegs. It's going to stay there. And every time you look up in the sky and you see that I have hung my bow, you will know my love for you extends to this. I'm never going to destroy you in this way. Every time from that point forward, by the way, in Scripture, when God destroys, it's with a sword, not a bow. He still has a weapon. It's just not that one. It's the reminder to us that he has set us free of our need to be violent and hateful. He set us free of that with his flood. And then he hung the bow on the wall that we can look to and be reminded. This natural process of light refracting through the, through the water is a reminder to us that he has hung that weapon up. Isn't it an amazing contradiction here at Megiddo to be reminded that this is a God who loves us and who's crazy about us and who still looks to us and wants to comfort us, even in the midst of turmoil and trial. It was a great moment. So if you will, I'd love to pray that God would prepare our hearts to be trusting in Him, despite all the different things that we may face, just as He's going to tell Daniel as He already has been.